coming, taking over what would be our nation, and then taking us from our homes into a foreign land, a foreign people, a foreign culture. And then what this picks up is about 50 years later, and we have the return of some of these Israelites to Jerusalem, and we have these three key leaders through Ezra and Nehemiah that uh, the story is told through and that the story is focused around. We see Zerubbabel through the first six chapters of Ezra focuses on rebuilding the temple. Then we come to Ezra through chapter 7 through 10 and then later in Nehemiah. But teaching of the law, trying to rebuild the community, get a spiritual renewal of the people. First seven chapter of Nehemiah, we see the rebuilding of the walls. And then Nehemiah and Ezra's efforts concentrated on that spiritual renewal. But let's come to Ezra chapter 7 and consider some things that are before us here. We see the Persian king is going to allow them or allow Ezra uh, to bring back whoever that would want to follow Ezra and come back to Jerusalem. Uh, he fully supplies them. If you look down around verse 23, it's just one verse, but all the verses prior to this speaks to the supplies and the things that he was willing to give. But verse 23 reads, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his son. So we see some respect from Artaxerxes for the will of God. And because of that, he was willing to give silver and gold and fully supply Ezra with everything that he would need, asking that he would go back and do God's will hoping that favor would come upon him and his people. Now beyond that, he says, appointing magistrates and judges, but think about the details surrounding this. He says, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So Artaxerxes is telling Ezra, take the law and the ones that don't know the law, teach the law. Make sure they know the will of God and those that would transgress the law need to be punished. So as they come back to reestablish Jerusalem and the people of God in his ways, there was going to be a teaching of the law. And now look at these words. For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And this is where this, it struck me, right? What have I set my heart to do? And I think we all, at some point in others, we think about the things that we set our heart to do, and we may have lost some perspective at times. And we set our heart upon or set our heart to do certain things that really do not have maybe any value or very much value in terms of a heavenly or an eternal perspective, right? And that's where we need to be corrected. And the word of God and the wisdom which God gives through his word can correct us. As we go about our days upon the earth, we need to set our heart to do good, to do the will of God, and within our lives not get caught up too much in this earthly type stuff, but walk in the ways of God's kingdom, trying to bear fruit for his kingdom, never forgetting that I'm a kingdom servant first, 
And my life needs to revolve around that. Jesus must sit on the throne of my heart and nothing else. As Mike said, anything that would become between that and what we're striving to do is idolatry. And we cannot let ourselves fall into idolatry. Now, as we continue, we see here this example of fasting and prayer based upon the circumstances. Uh, they did not have Levites. Ezra, of course, understanding the law, knew that they would need to send for Levites to come, and he did so. Uh, it says, verse 17, to send us ministers for the house of our God. So upon reading and understanding, they knew that they needed those ministers. They sent for them. They come, but it says, verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God. All right, and this is a great example where you saw you know, Isaiah, as I mentioned earlier, they trusted in Egypt against the Assyrians instead of God. They trusted in men and horses instead of God and angels. But Ezra here, he could do the same exact thing, but he doesn't. To seek from him, humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, quote, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we, so think about that. He speaks of God to the king, the one true God, and because of the way that he spoke about God, the even thought of asking Artaxerxes for protection, it was shameful to him. Why would I ask a man for help when I've spoken of the one true God? So Ezra being correct in his wisdom here, instead humbling himself and, and the others, and they entreat the one true God who can provide protection. And that's the example that he set. So verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entry. And again, that strikes me. Look into my daily life, and do I have the habit of trusting in men and flesh and these things, or do I treat God as God? And do I go to him as creator, all-powerful, and trust him? Put myself, put my circumstances, put all things into his hand, and just serve him faithfully, knowing that he will, he will take care of what needs to be taken care of. Is that what I do? Or am I like those in Judah who trusted in Egypt? Where am I, right? And I need to let Ezra here instruct me in trusting in God, trusting in him and his ability to take care of me. Now, as we continue, we see that there's a problem. Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples that were living in the land, but not just the peoples, their abominations. So they've intermarried and they've taken on these abominations. So the question becomes, well, what is Ezra going to do about this situation? There's obviously some choices. This is something that's large. Maybe it could be a little overwhelming. He could try to ignore it. He could try to blame others and rest in his own personal righteousness. You know, the whole sweep that under the rug. Hey, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to worry about these people. We'll let, you know, we'll let just nature take its course or whatever. In the text, that's not what we see Ezra do. Going to chapter 9 with me, beginning at verse 3, he says, And in the faithfulness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. So even the leaders 
are, have partaken in this sinfulness. And it says them foremost. So if we put ourselves into Ezra's shoes for a moment, this would be a very stressful situation. This is one of those times where you're having a hard time sleeping at night. What do I know? do? You know, even the leaders have come into this sinfulness, this lack of faithfulness. Well, he says, verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying. So it was seen that he joined himself to like-minded people that were faithful. And then in their fasting, in this outward showing of repentance in regard to the breaking of the cloak and the tearing of the clothes, then they pray. They go to the Lord God. And then there's a beautiful prayer here. I won't read all of it, but at some point, put your eyes upon all of it. Read all of it. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to my, lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For yes, we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair in its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And then he says, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? God, you've done all of this for us. Good beyond description in regard to who we are and what we've done. And now we've done this. What can we say? Obviously, nothing. But the overarching point is that Ezra decides that he is going to address the problem. And he has the mind and heart of repentance. There's the guilt. He gathers with the like-minded people, and they go to God for their solution. They don't look to some other type of plan or strategy or men or anything else. They know that if the solution is going to be handled, it's going to be because they went to God. So coming back to just the, the title of the lesson, wise men turn to God. Right? Not just in just guidance for life, but when things are not going well, right? When people have made mistakes, when I've made mistakes, the solution is always to turn to God or to return to God. And as we see in the scriptures, he abounds in mercy. His grace is amazing, but yet we have to turn to him. Now, Carrying over into Nehemiah, we see through the first seven chapters, we have the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, which his leadership becomes a great example for us through those chapters. But in chapter 8, 
we see this seeking of spiritual renewal. The people may have a temple, right? They may have uh, some sense of community in regard to what they used to be. They may now have some semblance of walls or protection in that regard. But we need the people to know the law of the Lord, to understand the law. And of course, we need to abide in it. And so that was the mind of Nehemiah as he got Ezra to come. And they brought the law out and they began to read the law before the people. And they very quickly discovered that they needed to be observing one of the feasts. So let me look at some of these things in, in chapter 8. It says, uh, verse 1, that they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And then see verse 3, and he read from it. And it says, early morning until midday. Early morning until mid midday. And it says, all the people were attentive at the end of verse 3. And then as you come down to the end of verse 7 into 8, help the people. So the people that were maybe struggling to understand, we had the priests there, the Levites, that would help the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, as we come into verse 9 and following, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. I suppose because they see that the way that they are living was contrary to the words of the law. And when you read through the words of the law, you understand the terror of the Lord. And it's a frightening thing to transgress God. And that sin is serious. And so I would imagine that would be the cause of their crying and their weeping. But this is going to be a new day, a holy day. Quit your crying. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So a celebration. And so I want us to take a moment and just examination. We get into these habits, these ways of life, and it's hard for us to change. You know, it's like within our own homes. What do we do with the word of God? Are there other literature or is there media, TV, entertainment that has become so prevalent, such a habit for us, that to sit down for a long period of time and to just open the Word of God and to just read it and soak up and let it saturate as a family, would that be foreign? And would it be so foreign that we'd have a hard time today to walk and do that? And if that's the case, obviously we need to change. But change is hard. Right? We need to have the ability to read God's word and be affected by it. They read the word from morning until midday, and they wept bitterly. They were affected by the word of God. We need to let the word of God affect us, and especially as it pertains into our home. When we think about all the things that are crazy in the world today and how some people want to say that good is evil and evil is good, we have to come back to what we can control what God allows us to control. And that's us as like-minded people trying to serve God faithfully according to his word and in our homes. We can control that, right? And then we all go out into the world and we strive to be lights. But those of us that have little ones that we're influencing and that we're training, we have to be intentional with the way that we train. That word intentional, purposeful, deliberate with our training. You know, if you want to think about it from the illustration of the father, you know, in the world today, you have a lot of problems with fatherlessness, fathers that aren't there, 
Maybe they're dead, or maybe they don't care, or they never cared, and they never showed up for their child. They just let that mom, and it may be a mom that has multiple children through multiple fathers. That's very rampant through certain cultures. But it may be the father who is around, but is always engaged in work or other things, absent-minded. And if there is something that they engage themselves with a the kid, it's more selfish. It's something they want to do. But then there's the intentional father, the one that has a vision of what they want their child to become. And they see that that day that they're going to leave the house and they're going to go out and be fully independent. And so when they spend their time with them all throughout their life, what they do, the activities, the conversations that they have, the books that they read, the things that they talk about, it's intentional because they know what they want the child to become and be able to do. And when they step out into the world, they've trained them to be that and to fulfill that vision. That's being intentional. And that's what we have to be able to do with the things that God allows us to control. So in the home, are we intentional enough to say that this home needs to belong to the Lord? And if it's going to belong to the Lord, these are the things that we need to do on a daily basis to make sure that we're walking according to God's ways. If we're not intentional, then we're much more likely just to become like everybody else. And if we look back to the example of Israel, is that not what happened to them time and time again? They started to look like all the Gentile nations or the nations around them. Even when you study through the book of Isaiah, you have this one portion with all these judgments against the foreign nations, and then Jerusalem stuck in there. And I believe it's because they started to act like the foreign nations, and God wanted to communicate through Isaiah that if you act like them, then you'll be judged just like them, and this burden will come upon you. And so in our life, as we consider the wisdom that God gives us, our response to it becomes paramount to whether we will walk in his wisdom and face the consequences, the good consequences of walking by his wisdom or the harsh and difficult consequences or walking by foolishness. Now, as we continue, we see that they observe the Feast of Tabernacles. So in reading the law, they recognize that they should be observing this feast. So a feast that would, of course, celebrate the exodus and God's protection and provision for them in the wilderness wanderings. And so they go out and they find the provisions and so forth uh, to make the booths. And they set that up and it says, and day by day from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, they kept the feast seven days. So they read and they said, this is what we should be doing. They change, they go about doing the things they need to do and they observe the feast. Now, as we come into chapter nine, we see that there, you know, there's a little bit of a problem, or I'll say a little bit, a big problem. Uh, they've got these relationships, like we had mentioned earlier, where they had intermingled and they had accepted some of the abominations from these other cultures and these other people. And it says, verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And so you see them addressing the issue. Ezra was able to get them, the leaders as well, almost all the people in order to, to separate from those relationships, to come back and walk straight 
according to the word of, of God. Then verse 5 begins a long prayer. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. And then he goes back and beginning with Abraham, he speaks of God and the things that God has done. It carries through all these verses in chapter 9, coming into verse 38, and it says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So just reflecting back, Ezra and coming back, Nehemiah, of course, having built up the walls as we read through the book of Nehemiah. Then they want this spiritual renewal, so they bring the law of the Lord out. They read it. They recognize a couple issues here. One, that they weren't observing the feast, so they address that issue. They recognize the problem with the people having joined themselves to these other peoples and the abominations are followed. They address that issue. So when we consider both examples from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that the wise men turn to God. And so when we consider that upon our own life, just very simple terms, we think back to one of Jesus' lessons as far as building our house on the rock. That's the wise man. It's got to be built upon the word of God. And for us, as we follow Jesus, it's built upon that. But it's training ourselves. In life, we have these temptations to look elsewhere, just like they did back there with Israel. Trust in men, trust in horses, whatever it may be. But we have to have the wisdom and be grounded in the wisdom to trust in God in all things. So whether it's just guidance in life, we're in a particular problem or situation, are we going to go with these other sources? Are we going to trust in these types of things? Or are we going to trust in the word of God, trust in men and women of faith, and let God you know, take control and take care of us? Are we going to trust in that? Right? It's not always going to be easy. It's not like it's going to happen overnight. Right? We may have to go through a period of suffering. We may be tested. God is the, the potter and we are the clay. We don't get to decide how it's going to go. But if we recognize that he's God, then we need to be wise enough to humble ourselves and know that whatever path he would give us is the best path. And then go through it, leaning on him for the strength and the endurance that only he can give. So, of course, we turn to God's plan. Now, if there's questions, understanding of life, uh, looking out for you know, wisdom and how to handle particular situations, or even in business and other types of things, are we going to trust in the wisdom of God, the things that are revealed to us through the Bible and live according to those words, or are we going to be tempted to go over here to maybe some New Age philosophies or Eastern thoughts and meditations or any of those things that could tempt us. We know Satan is working daily in order for us to fail and fall. And he has many ways of deceptions and lies. He can find ways to tickle our ears and to interest us in different things. But we must have the wisdom and the fortitude to continue to come back to the word of God and walk straight. It's the only path that will lead unto the, you know, the eternal reward inheritance that's laid up to us. So we have to turn to God's plan. And then finally, when we err, 
we stumble, we make bad choices, we are filled with guilt, we're ashamed, you know, all those types of things. Maybe so ashamed that even just walking in this building and being of people of faith just makes us feel terrible. Are we going to go through that? It's our own fault. There's consequences for the things that we do. Or are we going to run and, and hide and do what's easy? Right? And that's a, a great point in and of itself. Oftentimes, if we seek out the path of ease or what's easy, then we're stepping off the path that God would have for us. If we're going to become strong and capable, we're going to have to be pruned. He's going to have to test us. He's going to have to put us through trials so that we can get stronger. So the path that's hard is oftentimes the path that God would have us walk because we have to learn how to lean on him. And that's the only way we'll ever learn. Human beings, if given ease and comfort, we'll typically take it. We're like water. We take that path of least resistance. But how do we ever become capable servants if we're always in ease and comfort? We have to go through trials. And that's why James teaches us to, re to rejoice, not because it's fun, but because of the end result. It results in our maturity and us becoming complete. And that's the way we need to see the world, right? Trusting in God's wisdom and turning to him and his plan in all circumstances of life. So even when we would fall away and we're ashamed and we're filled with guilt, we just got to pick ourselves back up come to God, humble ourselves, come back to our brothers and sisters and allow ourselves to be healed by God and our family. So of course, we return to God's plan. And so if there are any, any of our number, you know, among us tonight that are in that situation and need to return to Jesus or have never come to Jesus, now is a great opportunity. So if you have need of that or the prayers of the saints, please come as we stand and sing.
<clears throat> morning. Just kind of 